this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Crushing Responsibility Edition. It's Wednesday, January 19th, 2022. On today's show, we're going to discuss The Lost Daughter. It's a feature film on Netflix. It's an adaptation of an uh, Elena Ferrante novel. stars Olivia Colman, and of course, I think most people know it's the directorial debut of the actress Maggie Gyllenhaal. And then we're talking about a network show that's a a red letter week for the culture gap fest. We don't do it very often. This one is Abbott elementary. It's a mockumentary sitcom about a Philly public school. It's created by and stars Quinta Brunson. And finally, yeah, okay. Your spelling bee addiction. It's killing you slowly while also no longer giving you the old high. Well, I have some good news for you. Someone has invented wordle. We discussed the latest, uh, smart set word game. Joining me today is uh, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hello. Hello. Julia, of course, you are the deputy managing editor of the LA Times, and you join me from Los Angeles. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic of Slate. Dana, I am keening with FOMO right now, because you are where? I'm in Los Angeles, California. And what did you do last night? Not to rub it in, but I spent hours and hours in the company of one Julia Turner. I met her new baby. We had dinner together. We talked for hours. We split a bottle of wine, and you weren't there. I, I pretend to be rubbing it in, but in fact, we missed you, and it would have been great if you were there. I'm hoping that that will bring this a little closer to being an in-person Gabfest. That's pretending to rub it in, Dana. I would hate to know what your fucking A game is there. Oh, my God. Uh, okay, before we flow into the show proper, Dana, what are you doing in Los Angeles? Stephen, I am here because I was flown out by my publisher, because I'm fancy, to do an interview with none other than Mark Marin. I'm going to be on his podcast sometime in the next couple of weeks talking about my Buster Keaton book. You know, I do have this picture in my head that I get to you know sort of savor as I try to make a show with my two ex-friends, which is you, <laughs> Julia Turner... Marin, maybe there's Andy Warhol or Basquiat there as well, and you're all throwing your head backs and laughing, you know, the, the cigarettes <laughs> poised between your index and middle finger. And Steve is breathing on the frosted glass to make a little <laughs> hole with his sleeve to look in on us. I mean, there's no frost because we're all out in L.A. Oh, uh, yeah, know? we're all out in L.A. It's metaphorical well, frost, Julia. I got your frost. frost. Julia, I can honestly say I got your frost right here. <laughs> All right. Shall we make a show? Please. Uh, please, yes. Okay. <laughs> Let Proceed. it end. Young Metcalf. All right. 
The feature film, The Lost Daughter, it's now on Netflix. It's the directorial debut of Maggie Gyllenhaal. She's uh, best known as an actress. I suspect she will be very well known as a directress going forward. Uh, this one is based on a novella by Elena Ferrante, of course, the great Ferrante. Uh, it stars the ever-estimable Olivia Colman as Lita. She's an academic, a literary scholar. We can safely assume she's affiliated with Harvard. She says, I live in Cambridge outside Boston demurely, but we know what that means. She's on holiday alone on a small Greek island. Surrounding her solitude, interrupting her solitude, is another family. They're loud, flashy, boisterous, multi-generational, intrusive. And uh, they're both intrigued and suspicious of Lita's apartness and apparent refinement. Something about the sight of their little children in turn makes Lita flash back to her own kids. And over and over, we go back and forth between the present tense and 20 years ago, back to Lita's own apparently agonized experience of motherhood, uh, an experience that plainly traumatized her and she lives with guiltily to this day. Both stories come into focus kind of in parallel to one another of a mafia or mafia-adjacent family's inner politics and implied capacity for violence and Lita's own backstory of maternal abandonment and uh, shame. Present-day Lita is played, as I said, by Coleman. Flashback Lita, meanwhile, is played by Jesse Buckley. The movie also stars Dakota Johnson, Ed Harris, and hunk alert Paul Mescal, Mr. Phoebe Bridgers. Uh, let's listen to a clip. Dana, can you uh, can you set this one up for us? All right. So in this scene, you're going to hear the voices of Olivia Coleman and Paul Mescal, who I only just now realized when you said it, Steve, is Mr. Phoebe Bridgers. I'm agog at that little bit of gossip. You'll hear them uh, sitting at an outdoor cafe on the Greek island where she's vacationing and he works and they're talking about her daughters. Your kids mm. are my age. Yeah, 25 and 23, Bianca and Martha. Mm. And do they look like you? I don't know. It's hard to say, if I'm honest. I probably do. Because you're beautiful. Mm-hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Go my boy. <laughs> my mother was very beautiful. And um, when I was about Martha's age, I felt like she hadn't shared it. Like, in creating me, she'd separated herself. Like, pushing a plate away if the food's repulsive. Hmm. Hmm. But Bianca and Martha, it's funny. What I find most interesting are the secret resemblances mm. you know so what makes bianca seductive and martha not and vice versa well they blame me dana uh you know di- directorial debuts by people who are otherwise known or had a you know really quite storied career as actors or actresses always sort of a dicey proposition they maybe want to play a little too much with the camera let the viewer know you're there this is also very tricky material it's a, a really excruciatingly painful psychological novel being brought to the uh, screen with a lot of interior life to it. Um, How did Maggie Gyllenhaal do here? What do you think? I mean, many apparently contradictory things to feel and to say about this movie. First of all, I definitely think if people are interested in, you know, Ferrante or in Gyllenhaal or in Coleman, there's so much going on in this movie that makes it worth watching. Unlike a lot of critics, though, I mean, I know some critics, including some good friends of mine, had this on their top 10 list. They raved about it. They thought it was one of those straight out of the gate, perfect debuts. And while I agree it's a very exciting debut for Maggie Gyllenhaal, and as you say, it's it's an actor's directorial debut can always be dicey. What I often find, rather than being directorially show-offy, as you mentioned, is that they can be just overly acting focused, right? I mean, if you've always experienced um, making movies from that side of the camera and what you're supposed to do is give a good performance, there can be almost like a hamminess encouraged or something. That is certainly not the case with this movie. 
and I and I can't wait to see what Maggie Gyllenhaal does next. I completely regard her now as like a legitimate, important director. Um, but no, I don't think this movie's perfect. And I, I really want to get into with you guys some of the things that I think are a little raggedy around the edges about it, um, which have to do, I think, in some ways with translating whatever is going on in the page of Ferrante's novel to the screen. And that has to do with the regionality having been changed, right? This no longer takes place in Italy, which is obviously a really important point in Ferrante's work. And, uh, and so it's now about a woman born in England, but who lives in the U.S., who's visiting a Greek island and mm-hmm. speaking mainly with Americans or this Irish guy, right? So it's this kind of transnational scene right. instead of the, the very regional and, um, as with the Neapolitan novels, sort of Sicilian-based uh, spaces that Ferrante's novels take place in. I think that kind of harms it. The ending, which we'll get into in our Slate Plus segment today, is extremely ambiguous, so much so that I, I'm not sure that this movie quite ever came into focus for me. There were many exciting moments as it unfolded, uh, but in the end, I wasn't quite sure what I came away with. And some people love that. I know that there are people who love to walk out of a movie scratching their head in that precise way. And as much as I love an ambiguous ending, I also want to know why I saw the movie and what it was trying to say about the themes that it's about, which in the mm. case of this movie are motherhood, loneliness, and we can talk about what some of, some of the other ones are. Anyway, I guess my short thumbnail response would be like, fantastic bunch of interesting ideas thrown out there. Not sure that it all completely coheres, but exciting debut nonetheless. Yeah, uh, Julia, listening to Dana, it occurs to me that Maggie Gyllenhaal set not only one bar extremely high, adapting a very literary, very psychological novel to the screen, she set herself another I mean, you could argue a nearly impossible bar to hurdle, which is telling the story of someone who's been a bad mother or could could discover to her own horror that she was capable of being a bad or neglectful mother in one interpretation. In some ways, maybe she was an extraordinary mother. Um, a, a very, very hard thing to make sympathetic. How do you think she did with these two hurdles? I liked this movie a lot. Um, and I I see what you're saying, Dana, that... that Perhaps not everything was completely unerring, um, but Olivia Coleman buys you a lot of give. Like just watching Olivia Coleman luxuriate in the complexity of this performance, and then watching Maggie Gyllenhaal's camera as she takes in Coleman's particular mix of vim and ambition and intellect and motherliness and unmotherliness like that dyad is so intriguing and so complicated and gives you so much to think about that the weaknesses of the rest of the movie didn't bother me particularly um and i will also say it's it's incredibly tense i mean part of why it's so effective and part of what is so effective about it is that you know, it's fundamentally a movie about like a middle-aged lady remembering her daughters and kind of moping ambivalently about the choices she's made in her life. But like through various small machinations about a lost doll and a falling pine cone and, um, you know, whether somebody's going to see what's been left on the skinny rickety metal table on the terrace, like every scene is full of like suspense and tension and drama like just when you you know I was not necessarily looking forward to this because I was like okay yeah interesting ambivalence probably something horrible happens to somebody along the way (laughs) you know and it and it it plays like a thriller almost uh in this really really intriguing surprising 
great way. It it moves pretty quickly for being about what it what it is about. Yeah, uh, Julia, I'm I'm with you on this one. Uh, I feared for the worst going in. Uh, for the first maybe five minutes, ten minutes, I was very skeptical, uh, and then I became uh, over time entirely captivated by this movie. And I'll use the L word. I loved it. I really did love this movie for a, a lot of reasons. I mean, not only is Olivia Col- Coleman's face and and person a, a you know a mirror to her character's soul. I mean, she knows how to use those instruments to perfection. Therefore, she's uniquely qualified to play someone who's, you know, the, you know, who's carrying the action of the movie mostly in her pain and suppressed or unexpressed pain. She's terrific at that. It's, in short, it's very adult about how people, especially semi-strangers, thrown together, get to know one another, court one another surreptitiously turn on one another very suddenly you know um and uh uh and it's very adult about the fact that some people in the world actually do make their living professionally vis-a-vis literature it's one of the fronte's very good dana at depicting that world as if it's real and important at least to the characters without falling back on cheap undercutting satire like oh can you believe people think about yates i mean she's named lita the main character is named after lita and the swan the very famous yates poem these things can be pretentious i never find them pretentious in ferrante i thought this was a beautifully realized movie Wow. I mean, maybe I, I've seen it twice now. I actually watched it on the plane out here to California because it was one of the plane movies. And I thought, oh, I need to see that again to see why I didn't vibe with it quite at the end. I mean, for the, maybe the first hour and a half, I agree with everything you guys are saying. But I think some of those virtues, Steve, that you are imputing to the movie actually just belong to Elena Ferrante. And maybe because you love her prose and you know the world she comes from, you're almost like grafting them onto the movie or something. I just didn't think that the movie in itself expressed those things you're talking about. The, you know, I mean, and again, this relates in some ways back to the the regionality and the placeness that I was talking about that's absent from this movie. Mm-hmm. I guess there was something so gauzy and elusive and, you know, referential about particularly the frame story, which, you know, I won't get into now, but the thing that happens at the beginning and end of the movie that sort of gets buckled back to again at the end, that just left me literally saying like, what happened? What was the motivation of the main character? Right. (laughs) And as we walk out of the movie, and I know that, you know, it's ambivalent, there are many things to take away. But in relationship to this central story of her looking back, you know, the the flashbacks with Jesse Buckley, who's fantastic in the role, um, the two daughters, the, you know, her, her ambivalent relationship to them, how are we supposed to feel about that? Am I too crass that I wanted a little bit more substance at the end of the movie? Julia, I'm not going to call Dana crass, but can you do it for me? (laughs) you know she's the crassest um i mean what we haven't dug into is how radical or surprising or excellent or interesting is it to portray a mother who essentially regrets being a mother without regretting or letting go of the fierce love she has for the children she's brought into the world but just her sense of absolute besetness in the flashback scenes where you see her with children who are meant to be, I think, like four and six or five and seven and feeling the unrelenting demand upon her for her attention, which pulls her away from her work, pulls her away from her marriage, pulls her away from the pieces of herself that that constitute her self um, is interesting. I mean, we just don't see that that much. And there is... 
you know, I think Vulture had a like a guide to the sad moms of Oscar season. And I saw some tweet going around of someone being like, oh, yeah, wonder why, wonder why people are interested in beset sad moms right now after two years of complete <laughs> societal collapse. Like, Right. And no parental you, leave. Yeah. Right. We still yeah. haven't even gotten parental leave from. from yeah. Like it, 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 it does feel um sort of apropos. And I think part of what resonated for me with what Steve was saying about taking the academic world seriously, I mean, maybe there's not as much precision or depth as um, there might have been in the novella, but like when she has a moment of her career beginning to take lift off, you have a sense in the early flashbacks that like her husband has the lead academic career and she is sort of the the fallback in the mom has been kind of in a mom swamp for a few years and you know trying to carve out the space to do academic work with children seems like even more brutal than just basic because you don't have some place to go and you are just in your you know academic apartment and your kids are just behind a like french french doors with glass in them that have no soundproof if they can even be contained behind there like the the sort of panic and terror and spacelessness of feeling like she doesn't have the space to do her own work is so well rendered in those flashbacks. And then when she does get invited to a conference and then get name checked by a, a academic big shot and then begin to kind of come into her own as a person who's the power of whose thought is significant like the movie, you know, even though I think some of her rivals suggest like, oh, well, maybe the academic big shot is just trying to get into her pants or whatever. Like the movie takes seriously her ambition and her ambition to be something beyond a mother. Um, and, you know, also looks at it cleanly as something that is kind of connected with her. You know, there's sort of scenes where she's enjoying speaking in Italian and just sort of luxuriating in her interests you know as someone who's studying comparative literature and I don't know I, that all of that felt so fresh and interesting to see so I think there's just I think some of the response to this film is just the base level of excitement that this is the emotional terrain that's being portrayed you know mm -hmm. that just the the actual work-life balance challenge, which is oft discussed, but, you know, perhaps not often seriously rendered and certainly not seriously rendered with someone who, who makes the radical choice to choose work and the life that work gives her over what usually lies on the life side of the column. Mm. I agree with all that. I, I think it's just extraordinary to be in what feels like a real and fully rendered adult universe in a feature film, you know, in 2022. Uh, all right, well, this one's called The Lost Daughter. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal uh, uh, directed it, adapted from Elena Ferrante, uh, starring Olivia Coleman. There's a lot there to work with. And uh, guess what? We're going to talk about it more because there's a lot of stuff to spoil or, or that you can't get to unless you spoil. So in the plus segment, we're going to have another yet another crack at it. All right, moving on. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Most of you listening to this show right now are probably multitasking in some way or another. You might be driving, cleaning, exercising, maybe grocery shopping. But as long as you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing right now, and that's getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. 
It's easy, and you can save money by doing it right now from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year, so you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Okay, well, before we go any further, we typically talk business. Uh, Dana, we've got something fun today, in addition to the usual unfun drab stuff. But <laughs> Hey, everybody, we're not drab this week. It's <laughs> like Poultry Cap Fest. <laughs> not drab for a change. Slightly less drab than usual. Our first item of business was just to tell listeners about something we've been talking about for a few weeks, but here's all the details if you want them. This is a live event that Steve and I are doing with ultimate friend of the program, Isaac Butler, in New York City on February 3rd. It's going to be at the Strand Bookstore, and it's a live joint book event for me and Isaac, whose books, as we've talked about on the show, are sort of book buddies. They're coming out within a week of each other. We've Isaac and I have both been in conversation the whole time we're writing about how the hell are we going to get through this, and so we're going to talk about all of that and about the two resulting books themselves at the Strand on February 3rd with Steve as moderator, and this will later go into the feed as a live Slate Culture Gab Fest show. So if you're in the New York City, area, you can buy a ticket to this event, including buying the books along with it if you want, and we'll leave a link in the show page. And our second item of business today is just to tell you, as always, about our Slate Plus segment. Today, we are doing Overflow from our conversation about The Lost Daughter, the new film directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, starring Olivia Coleman. One thing that has been greatly praised about this movie by people that love it is that it is ambiguous and open-ended and subject to all sorts of interpretations, which is true and is a good quality in a movie. But can a movie be so ambiguous that the ending requires a special spoiler-filled conversation in order to really address the movie at all? That's what we decided was the case with The Lost Daughter. There's a lot of questions that the ending raises that we're not going to get into in the main segment because they would spoil the movie. So we're giving you a special little button at the end that's just us scratching our heads about the last 15 minutes or so of The Lost Daughter. So as always, if you're a Slate Plus member, you'll hear that at the end of this podcast. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up to be at slate.com slash culture plus. Signing up just costs a dollar for your first month. And for that dollar, you will get ad-free podcasts, bonus content like the segment I just described, and members-only programming on many other Slate shows. And of course, unlimited access to all the writing on slate.com. I should also mention that when you join Slate Plus, you are supporting us, our show, and the journalism of our brilliant colleagues. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right. Well, Abbott Elementary, a sitcom on ABC, is a pretty cool thing for being so unexpected. It's a a sitcom about an underfunded urban school. Abbott is a Philly public school in the real and metaphorical shadow of Eagles Stadium, which, as the show pointedly tells us, is lavishly funded while the school is equivalently lavishly underfunded. Uh, Abbott goes without proper carpeting, lighting, staffing, you name it, they could use it and they don't have it. Janine is a second-year teacher who has not yet lost the shine of optimism, social purpose, a basic sense of calling. Um, And this 
it turns out it, it sort of shapes up as an important dividing line in the world of the sitcom, which is the veterans at the school tend to be experienced but jaded, and the newbies are zealous but naive. And those crisscross and mix and complicate themselves in interesting ways as everyone more or less tries to make it work. This, in other words, is a sitcom with a pretty serious social message. It also turns out to be the basis for reviving kind of otherwise tired set of genre conventions, the mockumentary style, uh, as it documents a workplace filled with nutty misfits, on and on. It stars its creator, Quinta Brunson. Let's listen to a clip. Whew, guys, I need a new rug. Mine is officially done. Mm, me too. I shook mine out and all of the asthma kids had to go to the nurse's office. Yeah, mine's busted. And you can't class up a rug like you can a couch with a nice coat of plastic. Hey, yo! What it do, baby boobs? What y'all think about this little film crew I brought in here? Distracting, makes our jobs harder. But exciting. We about to be on TV. Because they are covering underfunded, poorly managed public schools in America. No press is bad press, Barb. Look at Mel Gibson, still thriving. <laughs> Daddy's home too? Hilarious! <laughs> Ava's our principal. She has a unique take on her job. She's bad at her job. What's unique is that she's bad at her job. <laughs> Julia, let me start with you. Uh, it occurs to me that uh, the as different as they are, Lost Daughter and Abbott Elementary have something in common. They're about how the, the weight of the world lands on the shoulders of women. Uh, in one sense, this is uh, an interesting show. What did you make of it? If you had told me that never again would there be a workplace mockumentary, I would have said, thank God. Okay, we squeezed every drop out of that. We don't need any more. Thank you. Goodbye. And then along sidles Abbott Elementary and somehow feels like it is revolutionizing the form strong. Maybe it is. But like it makes the form urgent again by planting itself in a world that feels politically and emotionally realistic, if not 100% real. You know, the obvious comparison here to me is Parks and Recreation, right? Which is like a do-good show, a workplace full of zany wackazoids who, you know, fundamentally are trying to contribute to their communities within the increasingly fractured, fractious, you know, verging on like disassociative world of American politics. And yet, and, and, and perhaps Abbott Elementary will get there if it continues for many seasons as Parks and Recreation did, it eventually became pretty severed from the realities it was trying to depict and the stakes of like, does Pawnee have good parks yeah, felt a little pointless. Like part of the point of the show was about government and bureaucracy, but like really it was just a workplace. And I think the show didn't engage super deeply with the ideas of what government is and does and can provide. Whereas in this show, the stakes feel electric you know, the education of these children who need this institution to look out for them and take care of them and develop them and instill them with confidence and growth. And just, you know, I think there's a great moment in The Lost Daughter where a pregnant woman is like, well, being a mom must be so great for you, right? And in her Queen's accent, and then Olivia Coleman is just like, it's a crushing responsibility. <laughs> and then she walks away. <laughs> like, it's 
just such a great moment. And like this show is a sitcom all about the crushing responsibility that our society has to its children, how it is failing that responsibility and leaving these teachers on the front lines. And in a and after a couple of years where teachers have been on a different kind of front line, both in terms of figuring out what education should be during the pandemic. And then of course, in the various political fights about whether and how schools can reopen safely. Um, it's really interesting to see teachers centered. And then I think it's emotionally super rich, like the way it plays the balance between the jaded teachers and the, and the bright eyed newbies and the just emotional struggle in life of like, where do you put your energy and what do you try at? And how do you, what does it mean to try to make a difference and do things? Like it's, I, I found it to be like almost profound and it's still just like 22 minutes of snappy sitcom beats. I think it's a marvel. I really loved it. Yeah, I mean, major, major props to Quentin Brunson for pulling this together and also being the star who is very funny. I really, really love her character, who, as you say, Steve, is this kind of wide-eyed ideologue in a, in a school that operates on a much more cynical basis, but is also just very sharp, very funny, very good at the, you know, John Krasinski camera glance when the people around her are being, you know, more mediocre than ever and, uh, and really carries the show, even though all of the roles, I think, are, are super well cast. I do think, I definitely disagree with Julia that it reinvents the mockumentary framing. I think it succeeds in spite of that very tired framing rather than because of it. And I think an interesting place it could go formally that I hope it does go is to acknowledge the people behind the camera, which is something that these workplace fake mockumentaries never do. In fact, if you are being constantly followed around throughout your day by a mockumentary film crew, or I guess in their world, a documentary film crew, you would get to know those people. Those people would interact with the children and the lunch ladies in the cafeteria and would have a presence. And that I think would make that a less tired trope. But framing aside, this is almost, the, the, weirdly, the comedy it made me think of, the mainstream sitcom, was Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Even though that's not a, a mockumentary format, it had a little bit of a similar it had a similar warmth and a similar sense that there was this dysfunctional workplace, but the people in it were fundamentally not terrible. With the possible exception, we'll see where it goes, of the principal, who, as you heard in that in that clip, really is a grandstander and is always looking for social media attention, etc. Even she, though, is not the villain of the show. There's a certain warmth toward all the characters that, that I really appreciated. So, yeah, it gets a lot done in 20 minutes. It takes on questions that are hard to take on in comedy without being sort of boohoo about it. One more note that I would make, and this calls back a little bit to our Station Eleven conversation of a couple weeks ago, is that I wish the children were better characters. You know, I mean, they're running a school. It's all about, you know, who loves the kids, who doesn't love the kids, what do the kids need? And I feel like the kids and the actors who play the kids are treated a little bit as props to come in and give a punchline or say, I wet my pants, and then they have to deal with the wet pants, right? They're sort of setting up jokes so far anyway, three episodes in, rather than um, being characters who we get to know. But maybe that'll change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I agree with everything you guys said. I mean, you know, to begin with, there's just it's just a great example of how with some proper initial choices, you can make a very mainstream show that's nonetheless profoundly subversively political. So, of course, the big one is you allow the showrunner and star to be a woman of 
color. That's the first and most important one. But then the second one is like just subject matter. You know, I mean, it really, I, I don't mean to to beat and beat and beat the already dead horse, but it is just the absolute focus of American hypocrisy that we want to regard ourselves as a classless, classless society. All of our cliches about ourselves ride on this idea that opportunity is at least plausibly equal or more equal here than it is elsewhere. And every one of those gets exposed. I mean, it, it's, it's, all, they both get their highest expression in utopian American hope and get dashed most bitterly in the public schools where the equalizing might happen, uh, actually happen, but then doesn't. And I just, you it's one of those things you slap your forehead. Why has no one made a sitcom about this before? Uh, I, I love the show. This is captivating. It's very funny. I love the ensemble cast. I love the 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 digs that I relish as digs at me. There's like a white, nerdy, white, would-be white savior who constantly finds ways to self-center uh, in the middle of a workplace, you know, dominated by uh, people of color. It's fresh is the word that I would attach to it to a point. And I think it's worth saying what you guys have alluded to, which is that the, the format is exhausted beyond exhausted. I mean, the first one that I, I mean, of course, the great Ur mockumentary is Spinal Tap, but the first sort of sitcom, workplace sitcom mockumentary was The British Office. And and in many ways, it's just going back to that over and over again. I mean, the great American apotheosis was really Parks and Rec. It's tough. I, I actually had more trouble it sounds like than you did with the discrepancy between the freshness of the material, the sensibility, the cast, uh, and the point of view against these, to my mind, very tired tropes, beats, conventions, um, and uh, over. But but I will say that I'm as interested in sticking with it for finding out the inventive ways that they overcome that that contrast. And so far, the news is quite good. They seem to have. Yeah, I, I guess part of why it works for me and part of why I think this is just such an amazing project from Quinta Brunson and is exciting for whatever she continues to do with this show, but also for what her career will unfold is like, the characters feel so precise. They don't feel like types. They don't feel like, um, I don't know, they just feel really fully rendered from the pilot on, including the buffoon of a principal who we heard in the clip. Um, and you know, who, whose storyline is essentially, I think about how social media has like broken the brains of otherwise competent people, which is a relevant storyline, but like, I don't know, there's just a specificity. I mean, it's just the basics of good writing, but there's just a specificity to each of these characters. There's a, you know, substitute teacher slash potential love interest slash like stilted dork type, um, who's just a very precise human, you know? And so, I don't know. I just was willing, I, I found the structural, maybe you guys have talked me out of thinking that the show is doing something radical and new with the mockumentary format, but I, it just seemed like a fertile springboard for something so good that I like didn't, didn't mind. And I think the actors, it, it also creates a showcase for these very precise characters who've been sketched out um, to, you know, crack wise and, and make their little asides and further reveal the preciseness of their characters um, through this sturdy format. And I don't know, it just worked for me. Didn't, didn't bother me at all. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I'm being won over to your side, Julie, which is that the framing is a little tired and I do hope they push it specifically by breaking the fourth wall and acknowledging who's behind the camera would be cool. But 
the newness of the content of the show and the originality of the stories that they're trying to tell. And if you know anyone who's taught in a public school for a long time, this just kept, kept making me think of a, an old friend of mine who taught in a bilingual school in San Antonio, Texas for 20 years or something like that. I mean, she was a fixture at the school, a beloved teacher, worked as an administrator as well. And yet she was never able to affect any real change in the school. You know, And I heard so many stories about people that are almost as, you know, bad at their job as we heard in that in that clip as the principal on this show, right? And they were coming in and out of the system and there was nothing to do about it because they were unfireable. And I mean, it brings up all these questions about education that are so difficult to solve. And so I really identified with that, the fact that, you know, there's these huge systemic problems and there are people that really care about them working within the system. And there's there's just so much working against them to make any real change. Yeah, here, here. All right. Well, you know, adjust your rabbit ears. This is uh this is on network TV. I don't know if you know how to find it anymore, but um, oh, my producer is whispering in my ear. You can also watch it on Hulu. It's Abbott Elementary. We really admire it, really like it. So check it out. All right, moving on. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi point system, they never imagined somebody might try to actually snag it, but a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Well, Luke Winky in Slate Magazine recently wrote, there's no common ground between us. Too true, right? Consensus is dead. It's buried. In these trying times, however, we need something to unite us on our lowest common denominator instincts. His suggestion, Luke Winky's suggestion was, logging into Wordle every morning. And you know what? <laughs> I have to say, Julia, a while ago, we talked about uh, Spelling Bee. I was about a week into my addiction, which is, you know, you don't you don't really understand the scope of how something can take over your life, how obsessed and competitive you can get five, six tries in. Now, now I'm actually fully prepared to talk for hours about Spelling Bee and how it's ruined my <laughs> life. But um, Wordle, I'm still in the total flush of the infatuation phase. I'm, 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 I've probably done it eight, 10 days. Uh, I'm inordinately proud of my performance uh, thus far, even though I'm sure it's absolutely in the dead center hump of the bell curve. Um, But uh, anyway, I'm going to, I'm going to knock this one over to you now. Tell me about Wordle, your Wordle habits uh, and where they're trending. Well, it sounds like maybe we just need to postpone this conversation for six months and see whether we're still obsessed based on your spelling bee comments. <laughs> well, actually, you know what I need you to do is that I'm such a hopeless wordle head. I didn't even describe what it was. I assume everyone in the world is getting high on my supply. Why don't you do that? 
Wordle is a once a day web word game in which you must find, you must identify correctly a five letter word and you have six tries to do so. And with every guess you make, the game tells you whether you have selected a correct letter in the correct spot or a correct letter in the wrong spot. You then figure out whether you can crack the game in six tries. The game also has a sharing tool. So if you've seen people sharing those sort of histogram looking grids, squares of green and yellow on Twitter, those people are playing and talking about Wordle. Um, did I did I miss anything? Is that a, a, a succinct enough explanation of what the heck this game is? Uh, yes, though I think, Dana, a very quick detail needs to be added, which is while we were literally while Julia was speaking, a friend of mine screenshotted and texted me his Wordle today. So, of course, right now I'm screenshotting and sending mine back to him. We're kind of going toe-to-toe here. Dana, you're a viciously competitive kind of undermining sort. What's your Wordle <laughs> experience? I mean, like every time we talk about a game, I should just plug in a recording of me saying the same thing. Like, I don't get it. What's the big deal? Well, my primary experience of Wordle until we decided to talk about it in the show was that it was the thing that was ruining my Twitter experience. And I know that some other people are having the same experience. Steve, you're not on Twitter anymore. So you're doing this old fashioned style, or I guess it's all different kind of newfangled style by texting results back and forth with your friend who's doing it. But if you are on social media, you would see that everyone is constantly posting these grids. If you don't play Wordle, it just looks like a grid of green and yellow and gray squares. I don't know what it means. It's being posted. It's all I see anymore in my feed. And people are posting it with these cryptic messages about, you know, how they're proud or they're ashamed or they're sick of themselves because they're addicted to Wordle. And all I see is green squares clogging my feed everywhere. And I don't know what it means. So some, one of the things about Wordle is it's very shareable. And I guess this has in part to do with the fact that it only happens once a day, right? And it's in a way, it doesn't happen in real time exactly, but you have a limited amount of time to do each day's puzzle before the next day appears. Is that right, Julia? Or can you keep on going back and doing old Wordles? No, you just get to do the current one in front of you. There's not an archive that I've discovered. So in a way, it's like, I mean, I think that the virality of it must in part be related to, to that. Remember that little um, trivia game show we once talked about that was that was viral for a while? And it was this kind of goofy host that would appear live HQ, once a day. HQ trivia. Exactly. Oh, yeah. my God. Blush and you had mask. to do it in those five minutes. And the excitement, I think, had to do, I mean, it wasn't even pandemic time yet when that went viral. But think about it now. I mean, the idea that there is a place that we all gather and you have to be then and there to do it. That's not quite the case with Wordle, but it has a similar sense of an event game, you know, rather than a, a thing like Spelling Bee, which I prefer to play, actually, if I had to choose, that's just plonked there and you can, um, you, you can take as long as you want to finish it and, and go back and do old ones as well, right? Can you with the Spelling Bee? Or I don't know. As you can tell, I don't really care about any of these games. <laughs> and I had my usual challenge of just, I was just trying to do enough Wordle games in a row that I could bring something to our conversation about it. I guess I've done it four days running now. And I will say, and this is the one time I posted the results, that the first time I did it, I got it at only three tries, which is not fantastic, but for your very first shot at Wordle, it's pretty good. And I thought, oh, this is so easy. I'm so smart. I'm going to crush this game. And I'm going to talk about how dumb and boring the game is and how I'm awesome at it, but I don't care. Right. But I didn't get to be that cool person because the very next day I didn't get it at all, even in all of my tries. And I believe the next day I got it in four or five. Yeah. So I'm like, like Steve, I'm now just in the average middle of the bell curve. And I guess 
I don't know if this is me or the game, but I don't quite get the mojo that makes people so excited about it that they have to constantly post it. If you enjoy the game, that's great, but I don't particularly want to look at green squares all day and hear people brag about them. I've also heard when I mentioned this fact on Twitter, when I posted my very first results and said, I promise this is it, I'm doing it for the GabFest, but I promise not to throw squares at you every single day. Quite a few people responded saying that those squares were a real accessibility problem and that for people who are using software that translates what's on their screen into words, that they go to check their Twitter in the morning and it just says green square, green square, yellow square, gray square, and they hate Wordle for that reason. So in spite of the fact I'm not using that software solidarity no more green squares please mm. i you know julia by, by my math and correct me if i'm wrong dana did 12 minutes of prep for this segment <laughs> four, four wordles at the average average of about three minutes per wordle uh let's well make... i mean not to out myself but how much prep did you do <laughs> <laughs> i was just gonna say i think Stephen is standing on a very slender leg right there so we'll you, just <laughs> move on dana very quickly moving on julia let's Talk strategy. So, of course, you learn very quickly what the sort of risk reward of a uh, 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 trade off is in the game, which is that you can make guesses because you think you're close, or you can choose a word that you kind of know isn't right, but strategically is going to get you there in in one more move after because of the letters that you're either eliminating or getting right. Uh, I, I thought that that was kind of the strategic balance. And then like chess, it's your opening move is the determinative, determinative one almost, which is that first word. Does anyone have like a pet first word they use every time? Can I tell you, this was just pure luck, but the first word that I used on my killer first day that I nostalgically look back on when I got it in three guesses... Uh, I don't know. Wheat? What was your first word? <laughs> well, first of all, I looked at, I mean, I guess in a way I looked at tips, so maybe that's why I did well. Although even after looking at the tips, I never did well again. But there was an, a piece on the Washington Post about Wordle and how it's gone so crazy on Twitter, etc. And they were suggesting some first word strategies, which included, you know, just use a word that has a lot of commonly used letters, right? Because it's hangman. This is basically a, a, a variation on the game of hangman, right? Where with every round, you're eliminating letters that are not in the list and figuring out the placement of letters that are in the word. And, uh, and one of the words they suggested, because it has a lot of commonly used letters in the alphabet, was slate. So it seemed like, of course, mm. in honor of our beloved employer, that I should start with that word. So slate was my first word. And I then very easily, more easily than I will ever probably do again, figured out that um, slate went to salad <laughs> and salad <laughs> went to solar. And solar was the word. So that was my moment in the sun with Wordle. Mm. Um, I love starting with Slate. I also love the idea that you bring up the hangman analogy and that essentially what we're describing here is like the whole internet. And by the whole internet, I mean an extremely niche portion of the internet that is like journalists on Twitter has gone fucking insane for hangman, a web <laughs> version of hangman. And then I also just want to point out that Nadira Goff, our wonderful production assistant, has popped in our chat hangman plus battleship, which is like 100% true. <laughs> um, I want to just say that this game is fun the shareability like i don't and won't share the results of my games i like i have not shared the green squares i won't share the green squares the green squares are dumb the green squares did cause me to be aware of the game like i was like oh i guess there's a thing and then when people started to do a, like what's this thing type articles i read the articles and then i was like oh i like word games i guess i'll try that and i did um but I'm going to both be an asshole and jinx my streak and just say, like, I 
I think the game's too easy. I haven't lo- like I can't I, ha- I I like just mathematically you have enough tries yeah, to try right. the plausible words. I don't know. I have yet to not get it, and I'm sure that means I won't get it tomorrow. But like. I don't know. And it also, it's so limit, like it's so quick. It's, you can't, it's like a game that can't eat your brain. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's like main plus. I agree. It feels to me like a game we won't be playing in six months because you can sort of like crack the strategies and it gets less interesting. The thing that has been fun is playing it with my kids. So Mm. um, we've started doing it as like a family activity and they're at a place in terms of their vocabulary and like approach to strategy games that it's really fun for them so that's that's the piece of it that i have been finding enjoyable um and my opening word is usually some version of like spare or spade or spate like you Mm -hmm. get the s getting rid of the same letters right you you get the s you get the a and the e and you get one of the like word ender letters that Mm -hmm. within the d or the r yeah, E is, I think, the, I believe this is true, that E is the most commonly occurring letter. So I'm certainly pretty sure it's the most commonly occurring vowel in English. And so you almost have to have an E in your first try because mm-hmm. you want to know, is there one in there and what's the placement? If there's a silent E at the end, that already narrows down the field a lot. I kind of agree with you, Julia, that probably if I played this game on a regular basis, it would start to seem a little too easy, which doesn't mean that I would ace it every time. But I don't feel the challenge in it that I do in getting to a high level in the spelling bee. You know, I really feel like you can feel your brain waking up and, you know, you can be having your morning coffee and doing the spelling bee and sort of feel like I'm, my brain is wiring in, jacking into the matrix now, you know. And this Wordle game has never set my brain cells on fire in that way, whether I do well on it or poorly on it. So my first word, are, uh, I try to get three vowels, you know, up there in word number one. So I've used abide and aids, A-I-D-E-S, which has held me in pretty good stead because you kind of immediately get your vowels. And if you're lucky, some of the placement of the vowels becomes clear. And then it's then it's kind of an easier road to hoe from that point on. I think this game has caught on, at least with me, I'll speak only for myself, because it's the, it is the anti-spelling bee. It came along at just that moment. Spelling bee feels like like a job like my homework hanging over my head, you know, and it's the anti-spelling bee, right? It's, it's that spelling bee is, is like, ah, you're nice. Hey, great. You know, amazing genius, amazing genius, but not queen, never queen, you know, and it, you know, and it, it, it's also, you sort of stare for hours or I do at spelling bee kind of beetle browed, like, you know, ancient man trying to puzzle out fire or, you know, something, and, you know, I, it's just the amount of time that I sit there kind of word blind, incapable of, of squeezing out another word. And the other problem with it is that, of course, you get to the point where genius is every day, pretty much. And so your only standard then becomes getting queen. Getting queen involves, at least towards the end, in my experience, always involves jabbing at random sequences of letters, like the monkey trying to write shape. I want to be the monkey that wrote Hamlet, you know? And it, it's... it's it, it just is not, it's not an exercise that like measures anything or it's like it's delight free completely. The idea that Wordle is short, almost entirely non-competitive. It's pretty much once you get the basics down, a matter of luck, whether you're going to get it in three or four, maybe five. Uh, it, the time doesn't run out on you. You're not rated a genius or a dunce, but, you know, either way. 
and it's just it's just done with it's over i mean it just is its disposability and its silliness is what's so pleasure pleasurable about it so i'm i'm all in i love it and then it means that the like passive aggressive needling competition that i have with my friend on the west coast about it we both know is meaningless so we can get incredibly mean and underhanded about it it's very fun it's true, actually, Steve. The thing that's so great about it, and I know I just was a little bit shady about it, shade, also a decent first word, <laughs> um, is that the stakes are appropriate. Like the import, mm-hmm. the time that it takes, the difficulty. It's like a good third wave game. Like everyone's so fucking exhausted by everything in the goddamn world right now. <laughs> so it's like so this game is like Preach. short. Easy, funish, and done. <laughs> like it's like it's like the perfect game for a world that is like almost given up. <laughs> like that is why everybody loves it. It's so true. That's so true. All right. Well, I'd love to hear what our listeners make of this silly little game. Tell us about like some, you know, life hack way to get it in two every day or whatever. But let's get mail on this one. Uh, let's get it coming in. All right. Wordle. Moving on. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Stephen, I'm doing an L.A.-related endorsement. The one cultural thing that I've done since I got to L.A., well, I guess talking to you guys is a cultural thing and talking to Mark Marin is a cultural thing, but as far as an outing in the city, because of Omicron and because I was here to do work and see friends and do other things, I didn't go to any movies, and I only went to one museum, which I really, really wanted to see while here, which is the Academy Museum, the museum that opened during COVID. I'm not exactly sure how long ago, last year and a half or so, um, run by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, Film History Museum, happens to be a couple blocks from where I'm staying. And so I got a time ticket and I went there yesterday with a friend. In general, it would be really great if we could tour this museum together and do it as a segment because I have a lot to say about what works and doesn't work at it. Of course, this is only one set of exhibits and it's the very beginning of the museum and I'm not an art critic. It's a little bit early, but I would say I was somewhat underwhelmed by the museum and a lot of the way that things were presented in it. But my favorite show in the museum is almost entirely online and you can look at these wonderful objects in in my favorite thing that's up there right now. If you go to academymuseum.org and look for an, an exhibit called Path to Cinema, which was just a small room that was full of all these old optical devices. It was sort of very early, you know, pre-motion picture camera devices, magic lanterns and phenakistoscopes and kinetoscopes, and the names alone are fantastic. But, you know, from all around the world, there were these various kind of objects that used the fact of persistence of motion, the way that your eye you know, fills in movement in between still images, like in a flip book, right? In fact, there's flip books in this exhibit. And so there's all these different devices from the 18th century on um, that, that use that persistence of vision to create the illusion of movement. And some of them you see in action, some of them you just see behind glass because they're so old and precious. You also have a one wall that's showing the Lumiere Brothers' very first movies screened in 1895, which was dear to me because my book kicks off with that very scene, the 1895 screening of Lumiere's first films. And uh, it's just one of those small but perfectly mounted exhibits where you can't believe you're looking at this tiny little hand-painted box, you know, with little glass slides inside 
Allied from Holland in the 1800s, just that kind of little precious gem exhibit. So if you go to academymuseum.org, we'll put a link on the show page. The exhibit is called Path to Cinema, and you can just look through a slideshow of all these cool objects. That is really cool. I'm typing it into my Word document as we speak. Uh, Julia, what do you have? Have either of you read Our Country Friends, the new Gary Steingart novel? No. No. It's a novel set at the protagonist's Hudson County country folly. Uh, And the protagonist is a very Gary Steingart-esque, successful Russian immigrant novelist. Um, And essentially a bunch of friends from all over his life all convene in a space that like, you know, in your mind, you invent the space of a book as you read it. I just set it at your house, Steve. There's like a set of like additional outbuildings and and like particulars of the space that are not as your house is. But I just like, I like when they went walking down the road, I pictured like the road by your house. Like when they talked about weird neighbors, I pictured like things I've driven by near your house. Like, anyway, you need to read it because it's very much set in the milieu of like New York people who moved upstate and, um, you know, are, are, are confronting the mysteries of life and the pandemic, uh, and child rearing and all the rest. Um, I want to caveat that the book is a great read, really funny and snappy and observant and just astute about the particulars of the modern condition in the way that Steingart's best work is. Um, I will say that I cannot vouch entirely for the final fourth slash fifth of the book like it gets weird and I'm not sure it sticks the landing but I will I can say that the whole ride is worth it because the first three quarters is incredibly fun and revealing and whatever the final bit is even if it's not entirely successful is is interesting to encounter so um our country friends Gary Steingart I love it. I love it. It took me 15 years to get in your head, Julia, but I finally did it with an assist from Gary Steingart. But uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I did see that that was out, uh, and I'm eager to read it, but fearful for what a creative class nitwit it's going to make me feel like I am. But whatever, I feel that way already, so I'll read it. Do either one of you know that, um, I think she's Israeli-born, she is Israeli-born singer Karen Ann K E R E N. Uh, friend of Not mine. At all. Yeah, she's been around for a while. Uh, I hadn't heard of her. A friend of mine uh, whose taste I trust sent me an email saying, I'm flipping out for this, listening to it constantly. She's wonderful. She's because she sings in French. I think she's Paris based. Uh, and uh, most of the songs I know of hers, or many of them, are in French. And she just has that fetching voice in that very French uh, chanteuse style. Uh, it's lovely. It's amazing stuff. She does. I didn't, I really honestly thought at this late date, no human being could do a a fresh, much less, you know, uh, affecting cover of Hallelujah. The song famously covered by Jeff Buckley, the Leonard Cohen song famously uh, covered and made kind of eternal by Jeff Buckley, but she manages to do it. It's, it's, it's her own. It's fresh. It's a new song. When you hear her sing it, it's, it's remarkable. Well, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composes hallelujah, hallelujah. But her music in general is 
bewitching and of a kind that I, I think both of you would love. So check it out. And then very quickly, I, I just kind of against my better nature or, or, or my own sort of expectations, I, I somehow stuck with it. And I'm completely into succession now. I was absolutely perfectly <laughs> poised on the love-hate fence. And I was love-hate watching it and kind of reluctantly on and off. And then I hit, I don't know if you guys have stuck with season three or how far you got in season three, but the episode that totally kind of, now I'm just all in. I know it's crazy this far in, but the birthday party, Kendall's 40th birthday party, which it's like, it's, it's, it's both OTT and OTN. It's over the top and on the nose in ways that I would have thought couldn't possibly work, but it's, it's, about an asshole's 40th birthday party, but he's the asshole who's desperately trying not to be an asshole and doesn't want that birthday party, but he only comes to realize it as it begins to really fully unfold. And he melts down, and I suddenly realized, in his own weird way, Kendall is 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 sort of like Tony Soprano, like one of the great TV characters in that he's doesn't know whether he wants to rescue himself from his inhumanity or his humanity and he's caught between those two things which is exactly the weird dilemma of watching the show it's like everything that i find ugly about the world that has its corollary you know it's non-objective corollary and steve metcalf is like drawing me to watch this tv show against my better nature at the same time like i can't help it but maybe it's sort of a redemptive satire i just don't know and i finally crossed that weird rubicon and his horrible struggle i mean he's he, just the way he speaks is so characteristically weird and self-conscious and i don't know i just didn't think a morality tale about the upper point one percent could really be anything but corrupt but i i'm i'm i don't know i'm sort of now weirdly taken with it have you finished season three no, 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 no. Oh, I, I'm so excited. You have so much fun ahead of you if you're if you're intrigued by Kendall's ride. I like was gonna tease you and point out that this is like when I came back and was like, Chinatown's a good movie. But <laughs> Yes, um, I know. It's like John Sponsberg <laughs> telling us to watch this great old sitcom called Cheers. <laughs> um, but I'm glad you're I'm glad you're enmeshed in it because I do think that the ideas that that show is interested in are ideas that you are interested in. So I'm glad you've you've written it through and I'm really excited to hear what you think of the episodes that follow because it takes Kendall in interesting directions. Oh, fabulous. All right, well, thank you, Julia. Thank you. Thank you, Dana. Thanks so much, Steve. Callie Dana. I, love I know, it. and this is my first trip out here where I've kind of gotten LA fever, and I, I don't want to leave. <laughs> yeah, so nice. it's so good here. It's also because I'm, I'm always on vacation when I'm here, so it seems like wow, no one ever works in California. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. The hair streaming behind you, the designer drugs coursing through your veins. You know, you got <laughs> the, deals the, uh, to cut. convertible that I'm not licensed to drive. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, gun it, gun it once down Hollywood Boulevard for all of us, Dana. Uh, you will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We left a lot of great threads hanging. Let's, let's tie them up uh, over over gmail and uh, of course the introductory music to the show is by the great nick Bertel, who also does julia the theme song too succession yeah i mean that and is the and the score of the whole show yeah it's just the music in that show is flawless and that's 
courtesy of, 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 of Nick Bertel. Uh, our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. This was a fun one, and we will see you soon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.